Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the People's COVID Inquiry and our third session, Did the Government Adopt the Right Public Health Policy? I'm Louise Irvin, a GP and member of the executive of Keep Our NHS Public, the campaigning organisation that has called this inquiry. We support calls for an official public inquiry, but the scale of the ongoing crisis means the people's COVID inquiry is needed right now. The Prime Minister is on record as saying, what I can tell you is that we truly did everything we could and continue to do everything we can to minimise loss of life and to minimise suffering in what has been a very, very difficult stage and a very, very difficult crisis for our country. And we will continue to do that. I lost my father to COVID last April and both my mother and husband were seriously ill in hospital with COVID and thankfully survived. As a GP, I've seen many of my patients become seriously ill and several die from COVID. Deaths in the UK from COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic now exceed 126,000. We all deserve to know how and why this happened. Was the scale of this tragic loss of life avoidable? Did we respond appropriately? We're grateful to the panel and to all the witnesses who are agreeing to appear over our planned sessions. Experts in the field and citizen witnesses will give testimony from their personal work and community experience. The panel will take into account questions sent in by the public in advance. The event is being live streamed on Keep Our NHS Public's main Facebook page, YouTube and Twitter. Live captioning is available, clicking the CC closed captions icon at the bottom of the screen or look at the accessibility guide in the chat. Links will be posted in the chat throughout the session, including to our crowdfunder, registration links for the next session and newsletter signups and more. The video of this session is being recorded and will be available to watch again. There'll be a five minute break in the middle as soon as appropriate in which we'll show a quick video, including clips from Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock. Let me introduce the panel. We are very fortunate to have them. Our panel chair is Michael Mansfield QC, internationally renowned human rights lawyer, currently involved in the Grenfell Inquiry. And he has represented the Stephen Lawrence family, Hillsborough families and many others. Professor Nina Modi is Professor of Neonatal Medicine, Imperial College London and President of the UK Medical Women's Federation. Dr. Tolulu Oni, urban epidemiologist and public health physician at the Medical Research Council Epidemi Epidemiology Unit, University of Cambridge. Dr. Jackie Davis, NHS consultant, radiologist, author and BMA council member, appearing in a personal capacity, as are all the panel. Lorna Hackett, barrister at Hackett and Dabbs LLP, is counsel to the inquiry. Welcome to all of you. It's my honour to hand over to Michael Mansfield. Good evening and uh, welcome as you've just been welcomed by Dr Irvine and her testimony of her own difficulties, suffering and grief. But I'm going to take just slightly longer tonight uh, to introduce a topic which I think is extremely important. This is the third session and this last week, the demand for a public inquiry has increased and has reached 
various media outlets, including the BBC, The Guardian and other newspapers. Uh, and as Dr. Irvine said at the beginning, we support that. However, what is it we, we support and what is a public inquiry? There are numerous misconceptions about this and it emphasizes the need for the forum that we're providing. It is the only forum. Now, the reasons of this, first of all, uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, announced the possibility of a public inquiry without defining it last July. So think about that. Not a word since. Not a single word. And many people thought, well, is he really going to do it? Because he goes back on his word frequently. And of course, that was one of the motivating factors that it may well be he won't order one. That's the first point. Second point is, even if he ordered one to start, as uh, Neil Ferguson was saying earlier today, uh, in the ensuing months, we need one now, he said. Yes, I agree, we need one now. But you're not going to get the kind of inquiry that is needed to look at everything in greater depth of the inquiries that are going on at the moment, usually they're historic, they're dealing with events that have happened some time ago, but they take time. They can't be set up overnight to take on the remit that the families of the, of the bereaved and want justice, it's not gonna happen because if, even if he ordered it now, it would take at least a year, possibly two, to set it up, find the judge, find the venue, find the witnesses and so on and assemble them, team of lawyers and so forth. Once you begin to look at the practicalities, you realize that the demand for that is not going to be satisfied now. And the point is that, of course, I haven't even got to the hearings. The hearings would take a further two years and a report a further two years. So you put it all together, it could be six years. So it's all very well for uh, Johnson to say, as the Guardian have reported today, that he, he has many regrets and there's a need, there is a need. Lessons have got to be learned, but this isn't the right time. Well, when is the right time then? And what the bereaved are saying and what workers on the front line are saying, what ordinary citizens are saying is, we don't want to wait six years. We'll be in a different pandemic by then. There'll be different demands and different exigencies that we've got to face. Now, the point about this inquiry is, first of all, it's the only one, and there isn't a likelihood of another one. Secondly, it is done in the format of a judicial inquiry. We don't have the same powers as a judge might have. I don't have powers of compulsion. Fortunately, we don't need it because people are, as it were, thronging to give evidence, both written and spoken. So the actual uh, format of the inquiry is is close. It's not the same uh, as a judicial inquiry. So what we endeavour to do is ask the questions everybody is asking and wanting answers now. There's another reason. There's a third wave, apparently. Even Johnson's saying that. There's a third wave that's going to wash up on our shores. Well, it might be interesting to know how that's going to be faced. Like the topic today, the strategy. So I've taken a little more time because the materials, the witnesses are of historic importance that we gather them now. They're going to be for the public 
for future governments and for a judicial inquiry which is much further down the line. I hope that explains the significance of what we're doing or trying to do here. Uh, and may I then, having said that, uh, take the opportunity now to hand over to counsel to the inquiry, Lorna Hackett, to call the first witness. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. Um, and I'd like to introduce the first witness, who is Rahana Azam. Hi. Hello. Um, thank you very much for your witness statement. I have a statement here, um, which is dated the uh, 20th of March, 2021. Um, and You've signed it and it says, uh, I confirm that the opinions I've expressed represent my true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Is that still correct? Yes, that's correct. Thank you. Uh, could you um, just introduce uh, your, yourself by way of your occupation, please? Yes, uh, I'm Rahan Razam. I'm National Secretary at GMB uh, Union, which is the third largest trade union in Britain, and I'm Head of Public Services. Thank you. Um, and just briefly, what has been your role specifically during the pandemic? Um, aside from being head of public services, I've also been organising the GMB industrial response to COVID-19 since February of last year. Uh, what particular issues have you found um, in your sort of dual role that um, workers you represent have encountered during the last year? What are the sort of headlines? Well, the immediate headline was worker safety and putting in uh, structures and places in place to make sure that workers were safe. But I will come into some of the challenges we faced around that. And uh, twinned with that was to ensure that nobody lost pay should they have to self-isolate. And we've had numerous examples right from the start of this pandemic where uh, the government just didn't step in and underwrite pay and therefore it was the, the the choice for some workers who were on minimum terms and conditions of whether they could afford to self-isolate on statutory sick pay or not. Yeah I, I'm, I'm going to ask you a bit more about statutory sick pay um, in, a, in a little while. Um, what, what in your view has the um, government strategy during the pandemic been in terms of the, and how's it impacted on frontline and low-paid workers specifically? Yeah, I mean, it's probably better for me to sort of do a bit of opening on this because, yeah. you know, we can't... No, is, is that OK, Laura? Of course, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. OK. Because, uh, you know, if we are going to look at the public health strategy in terms of the pandemic, uh, you know, we're of the view that there's been multiple phases of failure on, on part of government. And I just want to sort of qualify that, if I may. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we simply weren't prepared for this pandemic. And I'm sure others have already said this. We can't ignore the fact that on the 19th of March in 2020, COVID-19 was no longer considered to be a high co consequence infectious disease in the UK uh, and yet we've seen all of the deaths that have followed since and you know we're of the view and we did challenge the government at the time that by doing that would have meant that some of the resilience forums that were put in place they had almost sort of like brought down their response because of the um, where the um, infectious disease was downgraded so that's the first thing we also can't ignore the reality certainly but uh, my experience is the decades of cuts that have left our public services struggling and our public servants uh, dem demoralised um, 
Just to put that into context, I'm head of local government at the GMB. Uh, local government funding has been just ripped to shreds. 60 pence in the pound has been cut uh, in the past few years. And we went into this pandemic, uh, as you will already know, 100,000 vacancies in the NHS and 110,000 vacancies across the social care sector as well. So underfunding, undervaluing uh, and overworking of the people in these sectors led to massive chronic staffing shortages and a system that was already a breaking point. And that's why I do want to make the point quite early on that the GMB is campaigning for pay justice across public services. Uh, you know, on average, an NHS worker has lost around 15% of their pay over the past decade. Local government workers have lost 23% in real term pay cuts. And we can't ignore what's been happening in the social care sector or the sectors that have been privatised, where the vast majority of workers, predominantly women, people from black, Asian, minority, ethnic background are on minimum terms and conditions. So if somebody in those sectors uh, uh, were, were positive with the virus and they had to self-isolate, they were having to live off £95 a week. And if it wasn't for the work that we did back in the summer in terms of securing that infection control fund, fund through the health and social care sector, which was just filled with so much bureaucracy and how it was drawn down, we've still got thousands of workers, even today, that are on breaking point on the breadline. Uh, because they can't afford to um, stay at home because they're on minimum terms and conditions and they don't have the luxury of being able to work from home. Sorry, that was a bit of a long-winded response, but I just felt I needed to give a bit of qualification to that. No, thank you. That That's very helpful. Um, you, you say in your witness statement that you have had to fight from the start and every step of the way to protect your members throughout the pandemic. And I know you've given some examples there and um, just just for people that don't really understand what what is sort of what how would you um, paint a picture of minimum terms and conditions for somebody in that type of job what does that mean so so you're looking at literally minimum wage less than nine pound an hour uh, and back in February one of the first challenges that we put directly to government which was back in February was a, a private contractor in the NHS that was refusing to pay normal pay i.e just even the minimum wage should any of their workers test positive and have to self-isolate and back in February we started off where you had to have three qualifying days where you would get no sick pay not even statutory sick pay uh, before you qualified for the what was then the 94 pound uh, 25 percent uh, 25 pence a week rate and we put a lot of pressure on government and uh, the government did listen. I have to say there was lots of other, uh, you know, including the Labour Party, who put a lot of pressure on. So they what they what the government did do is make the announcement that they were going to do away with the three days of waiting for the statutory sick pay and that you could claim statutory sick pay from day one. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't enough because, uh, you know, our uh, big demand at the time was that you need to come in and underwrite pay because what you've got is people on minimum wages that can't afford to self-isolate. And then we got put into this sort of situation where we were here firsthand um, that, you know, it was workers trying to make the decision, what do they do? 
can they afford not to be at work or do they have to be at work? And that's not even me starting the conversation about uh, just the abject failure by government not to protect workers uh, through um, proper risk assessments, which is the employer's responsibility, but the personal protective equipment that should have just been rolled out. I mean, they should have been ready for this. It should have been rolled out across the care sector, the NHS sector uh, and across our schools. But none of that was in place. It was almost like every step of the way uh, and I was in weekly conversations with the government they were just playing catch up and I would still say today 24th of March 21 uh, we're still making the case for the government to step in and underwrite um, workers pay should they have to self-isolate because we've still got thousands of workers um, who are still just self-isolating on the statutory sick pay of £94.50 and I think Matt Hancock said it uh, quite early on he didn't think he could afford to live off that last year. Um, you, you talk also in your witness statement about, and I, I know you've just touched on it, but I want to expand on it a bit, um, social care workers and PPE. Um, you must have lots of stories. Um, can you tell us a bit about the, the, types of, the types of challenges that people have faced as a result of the PPE issues? Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I don't just sort of say that lightly when I said there was an abject failure by government when it comes to personal protective equipment. Uh, my understanding is PPE advice changed about 40 times in the space of six months, 40 different times. And I know certainly the GMB challenged Public Health England, NHS employers, um, as well as the government every step of the way. But just to put it into context is, First, there was that very long sort of convoluted uh, positioning by government saying that we are going to procure all this personal protective equipment and we're going to flood it across the NHS and the care sector. I have to say the care sector was very much the poor relations. Uh, uh, if you can look at it in the context of things were really difficult in the NHS, but it was a lot worse uh, in the care sector. I mean, we heard of so much rationing of personal protective equipment that even some of the providers couldn't access PPE at all. And um, we were almost in weekly conversations at the time with the government where they were trying to say, oh, well, we're trying to get the, uh, you know, the industrial manufacturing capability on personal protective equipment on track. And they never did that. They even uh, hired uh, the czar for PPE, which we met and we went through the, just the daily uh, concerns that we had of workers. Um, and just to put that into context, we saw even tearing of PPE. So in some cases where... PPE did arrive in hospitals and some of the wards. You know, we had out-of-date PPE. I mean, the amount of horror stories we heard that, you know, stocks had arrived and then it was checked and then it was out-of-date. You know, we had our paramedics on the front line with, like, flimsy aprons with no protection whatsoever. I mean... You know, we, we're not going to know until the future the actual accumulated impact of workers on the front line that caught the virus because they just weren't protected uh, in their workplace. So, and, and I still think even today when the government will say we've got a real handle on the personal protective equipment stock and uh, distribution, I would say we've still got masses of problems. And the GMB is one of the biggest trade unions in the education sector. You know, schools have now returned uh, back in terms of fully open. Most of our members have never stopped working across the schools and the government has made a conscious decision uh, and we are absolutely challenging this where uh, personal protective equipment 
just does not appear across the school sector. So if we really want to grasp grasp the whole pandemic and try and uh, lower the infections, is is you know the government really needs to take seriously about what's happening across our school sectors. You mentioned briefly about um, the employers needing to do proper risk assessments. Um, what have just broadly, um, what kind of things have employers not been doing? Um, I, I know we're talking about PPE, but are there other things that should have been done to protect your workers during the last 12 months? And, and it was almost like the blind, uh, employers had a bit of a blind side. And uh, because the government kept saying that, you know, they're in control of managing the pandemic and the response, and that they were putting all the guidance together, there was a lot of employers that were shirking their responsibility and saying, well, we're waiting to see what the government says. And there was numerous examples where we had to say to the employers, well, actually, government guidance aside, it is your duty as an employer to protect the health and safety of your workforce. And it was almost like uh, the Health and Safety Act didn't exist. And we can't ignore that the health and safety executive funding has been massively slashed. So there wasn't that mechanism in place where you know, a body could go in and really challenge those employers. Even Public Health England has suffered a decade of cuts. So, you know, we just didn't have the re we didn't have the resources to make sure that reinforcement was in place. So this is where I think the trade unions in the past year have really come in their own because what we've done is is we've had to almost sort of like pull together the resources, train our reps up so that they understand that what does a COVID safe, secure workplace looks like, starting from not just a risk assessment, but looking at individual risk assessments, how to challenge the employers, um, how to try and get some level of mitigating in place to protect them from the virus, but more importantly, uh, really looking at all those jobs and see which jobs can be done uh, in a different type of location. Uh, but then most of our members have been on the front line. So like I said, most of those jobs uh, are not uh, in that situation where you can do them from uh, working from home. Another uh, area that the GMB trade union had to move very, really quickly, quickly to address is we couldn't ignore the reality of the disproportionate impact of deaths across our black Asian minority ethnic communities. And actually, it was uh, GMB Union and a number of campaign groups back in the summer that called for the first independent public inquiry, uh, predominantly around the you know, what was playing out on our screens, our own experience of the disproportionate impact of deaths that we were seeing. And, uh, you know, Dr. Uh, Professor Fenton, who was then tasked back in the summer by the government to do a bit of a review uh, and a deep dive of why there was this disproportionate impact of deaths, that it, even his report in the summer was then redacted and all we got was lots of data reviews with no real recommendations for how to protect workers on the front line. And I find that even today when I'm talking about it, it makes me very, very angry because the government could have stepped in at any point and sort of said, right, OK, we're going to try and get this PPE uh, challenge under control. We're going to uh, shore up people's wages so people don't have that impossible choice of do I go to work or not? Uh, and we're going to try and protect staff as much as we can. And they didn't do any of that. And that's why the GMB trade union launched their COVID-19 risk register, because we have a duty of care to protect our members. Uh, and what we've been doing is logging our members' journey, because at some stage, as um, 
uh, um, colleagues said right at the start of this session today is there's going to be an independent public inquiry. We need justice, uh, not just for the families that have lost people. That's really important. But we don't know the full impact of long COVID, the accumulated impact on our members' lives going forward. And even where we've got really decent sick pay, that's coming to an end because we're a year on. We've got members who've got uh, almost like six months full pay, six months uh, half pay when it comes to sickness. But at some point, the employers are going to say, well, there could be potentially capability issues here. Uh, and we've got we really are having to challenge that uh, uh, going forward. So there's a number of areas there um, yeah. that I can go on a bit more about. That's right. that. um, so uh, yeah, you've, you've actually answered my my next question, which was going to be as a result of the you know, the risks that you've you've talked about. Um, what is GMB really calling for? Yeah, and I, I really do appreciate. So we're almost where we are from the beginning, and uh, you know I make no apologies when I say this. Yes, we secured that billion pound infection control fund from the health and social care department, but it meant that the local authorities had to draw that down, and then care sector employers had to draw it down before they could start paying, uh, showing up people's wages in terms of sick pay. That bureaucracy continues. So for us, full sick pay from day one for all workers. And when I say full sick pay, I'm talking about normal pay. I'm not talking about the statutory sick pay. So we urgently need government to either um, up the uh, value of statutory sick pay or just step in and underwrite wages of workers who have to take sick because they got the virus at work. And it needs to be uh, uh, underwritten ASAP. The other thing that we kind of ignore, you know, I'm head of public services. I've just seen over the past decade the absolute fragmentation of our public services. We need to bring back uh, public sector um jobs that have been privatised back into public ownership, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and it's almost like, you know, the government doesn't want to have the conversation, yet we've seen through their own uh, uh, project, through track, test and trace, money just being flowed out of Treasury into the pockets of fat cats, uh, if I can use that word, uh, and, and just money just being left where, so what we're calling for is um, all that private sector privatisation to be brought back under public ownership. And we very much need uh, um, um, the care sector. I mean, the care sector is like the Cinderella service. We desperately need uh, a solution to care. And I think the best way to do that is to bring uh, care sector back into public ownership as well and have a proper integrated health and social care sector. So we need an end to privatisation. Uh, and we also need to value our key workers. I don't need to tell anybody on this session or anybody's watching because I think everybody absolutely values uh, the role of key workers. But you know what? We've got an economy uh, that pays our amazing key workers so little. We've got high, highly skilled low turnover is what we need if we want to better protect uh, our communities going forward. And that's why, you know, our call for NHS staff the 15% uh, as a pay rise, it's just a minimum. Uh, and, and actually, I shouldn't call it a pay rise, it's pay justice, because a pay rise would be anything above uh, the 15%. So we want value of key, key workers to be recognised, what local government uh, workers to get uh, back the wages that they've lost over the past year. And we need to stop, uh, um, you know, this sort of 
exit of workers out of the NHS and social care sector because we're not prepared or the government's not prepared to value them. And we absolutely need to relook at how we uh, value our care workers who have done a phenomenal uh, work uh, on, on the basic minimum wages. You know, we need parity of pay uh, with local government workers for our social care sector. And the other thing that we need, and we've already calling for this and we've got some support, is we need COVID-19 to be classed as an industrial disease. I've already said we don't know yet the long-term impact for those that have worked through the crisis on the front line or were forced into non-essential work by their employers. But what we do need is we need some sort of um, safety impact in there and uh, we need COVID-19 to be classified as an industrial disease going forward. And we absolutely need safe workplaces. We need to update and enforce health and safety legislation. And we need specific provisions in there for public health emergency and funding enforcement. Because what we saw was that, you know, we saw some very creative solutions uh, uh, even across local government uh, and, and different sectors, but the funding just wasn't put in there uh, by the government. Uh, and we need to put people uh, before profit. Uh, and that's 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 really important. The other thing that we need to do is we need key worker status uh, and it needs to be put into the immigration regulations. I mean, I am absolutely astounded to see just the just 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 how public this government has been in terms of the institutionalized systemic failures. Uh, in the way they've treated workers uh, from um, lots of different backgrounds. And that's why we really need to get key worker status put into the immigration uh, regulations. And we need a legal definition of the roles, rights, and responsibility of key workers. They need to be enshrined into a charter. Never again should our workers be on the front line in a pandemic and not have that protection uh, that needed to be put in place right from the start. And I absolutely back the call for an independent inquiry into the handling of COVID-19 and the lessons that we need to learn. And one thing that we pushed and pushed and continue to push, we will need to see the government's equality impact assessment to their response to the COVID-19. Um, we actually did uh, our own equality impact assessment on some of their policies and we presented it to the government showing them where they were falling short uh, and uh, there is masses of inequality uh, that's emerged uh, in the pandemic. I think the reality is the inequality was always there. What the pandemic did was just shone the light on what we've had as an ongoing problem that really does need addressing. Thank you. Uh, Rahana Azam, I don't have any other, I haven't got any time for any other questions. Um, if I'm going to allow the panel to ask their own questions, so I'm going to hand you back to Michael Mansfield. Thank you. Thank you, Lars. Thank, thank you very much. I, I, I'm, it doesn't do justice to, I'm afraid, the questions that certainly I have in mind, or several, but I'm only going to ask one. Uh, listening to uh, over the last 18 months, the various proposals, furlough and so on, fragmented economic policies, which attach to certain workers, not others. And you've talked about minimum terms and conditions. You've talked about sick pay. You've also talked about underwriting um, wages and so on. The question I've got is that really, we're not out of this anyway. Uh, this is gonna go on for some time. 
And there needs to be a cohesive, it seems to me, coordinated economic policy on a national scale that actually looks at the welfare, the economic welfare of every single person in our community, because it's one of the things, it seems to me, that is affecting people most. Uh, uh, obviously, the virus itself, but the repercussions of no work, redundancy, losing a home, single parent, whatever. So I'm just wondering whether there's a scope here for a different economic policy altogether, which approaches it from the point of view of not the minimum wage, but what is, well, I call it a living wage, but what is a, a basic amount of money that should be set aside, whatever you are, whoever you are. In other words, it's not, it's not exactly means tested necessarily, back to a, a, an old concept. And I think the reason I ask it is that the, the country put up with austerity. Everything was cut. Then suddenly money is found. Now, I know, we know what's going on. They're printing it. Basically, it's quantitative easing. So there's a scope here for a totally different approach. So the question I'm asking is, am I mad or has anybody really got to grips with an entirely different economic approach? Well, that's quite a big question. I mean, I think, you know, there's been lots of debates and discussions through the pandemic that should we be calling for universal basic income. But just on furlough, I mean, you know, we really had to fight hard to secure that protection for workers, but then it was only 80%. And I think the vast majority of workers would say is, is it was 80% of whatever their wages are. But, you know, I, I don't think I, I would be at the point where I would say, I think this is the... This is the amount that's reasonable. I think what we need is that recognition. Uh, and I've talked today a little bit about how over the past decade, NHS workers have lost 15% of real-term pay cuts. Local government workers, 23%. We've got care workers on minimum terms and conditions. I think we do whatever the recovery package looks like or what the economy uh, recovery plan looks like, it has to put workers at the heart of it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's been the nurse nurses on the front line it's been the porters it's been the care workers not the bankers uh, you know and and we need to we need a people's bailout and that's what the gmb will continue to campaign for you know better protection of wages uh, we need to uh, make sure we've got protection of jobs because as, as you rightly say furlough ends in september we've already got thousands of workers potentially on a notice for redundancy if we don't come out of this pandemic and we really do, do need the government to step in fast to shore up jobs and underwrite wages because they find the money for track and trust and trust and billions have been wasted so it's a choice uh dr davis i think and then i'll come to Hi, uh, Hannah. So nice to see you, and thanks for coming today. Um, I just—it's a very sh quick question, really, but I just wanted to be absolutely clear that you say that people died unnecessarily because they weren't protected adequately by the government. So, am I right in, in understanding that from what you said? And do you think those families will ever get justice? I mean, one thing I will absolutely say is because the government was too slow on shutdown, on protecting workers, we've, we've sadly lost uh, workers unnecessarily. Uh, and uh, we do need to get justice for their families. And I, I also think that we, 
we can't let government rewrite history. You know, we, we've, we've got our own lived experience of the past year. We are the custodians of what's been happening in our workplaces, uh, uh, in our communities. And I think we've got to sort of be the voice and amplify the voice. Um, and I do think that unnecessary uh, people have been exposed to the virus and, and unfortunately have died. And, uh, and that's why the GMB is calling for the independent public inquiry, because... Uh, heads need to roll and we need answers. Thank you. Professor Mary, please. Thank you very much. Uh, Rehana, billions have been spent on furlough, as we all know. So my, my question to you is, uh, is it your view that furlough has been applied equitably across public, uh, the public sector workforce? Well, I think you've got to look at the way furlough was applied to workers who where industries were shut down. And I think there's an absolutely duty uh, of responsibility as certainly GMB is a, a general trade union. So whilst half of our membership is public services, the other half is private uh, uh, sector. And we did uh, join the call with the trade union or the trade union leaders to make sure uh, wages were secured and uh, jobs uh, were safe. So a furlough was absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, uh, but, under the but that wasn't quite my question. My question was, is it your view that the expenditure on furlough has been applied to public sector workers equitably? I appreciate that, that, you, that, that your comment about uh, private sector workers, but let's leave them to one side at the moment. Do you feel that the billions that this country has spent on furlough has benefited public sector workers equitably? Well, in my experience, public sector workers have been on the front line. They've never stopped working. So therefore, lots of public sector jobs were never furloughed in the first place. And that, that's why we've made the continuous argument that we need uh, the government to step in and shore up wages, because that's been the disparity, hasn't there? Right. Um, I'm just looking to see. Y yes, please, uh, Dr. Oni. I think that is so important and what 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 the implications for health would be and why why you think that's something um, that would be necessary at all. Um, and then the two questions really relate to, firstly, the mental health of key workers. So we're talking a lot about the exposure and being on the front line. Um, What is your experience of that and what what could have been what had been done and what could have been done better? Because this is something that is both acute and chronic. Um, and the second question really relates to the implications for vaccination. So, you know, from the experience experiences you've explained around PPE access and the the um, the barriers and what wasn't what things that weren't done well um, and in, increased people's risk of, of disease. How do you see that playing out now in the context of vaccination uptake? And are those are there similarities in those barriers? And what would you um, suggest would need to be done to address those? Okay, I'm going to go no, really fast no, and try and answer all of them. Well, I it, no, no, I, I think you'll find it too difficult to answer. There are three massive questions, <laughs> and I'm going to suggest they're all on record. And you will have every opportunity when you leave. It's not a witness box. When you stop giving evidence, to I'm going to select one of them. 
if you could kindly answer the other two in the fullness of time, either in a written way or some okay. other way. But the, the, the one I think is chronic, as that's the way it, it was described, is the mental welfare question. If you could answer that one now. Obviously, if the others link into it, do, do, do say so. Well, I mean, you know, we've got mental health crisis and uh, there's been no credible funding put aside by government other than warm words when it comes to protecting uh, our workers' mental health and well-being. Uh, I mean, we, we had a crisis right at the start and it's got significantly worse uh, over the past year. Uh, and certainly, you know, what the GMB is looking to campaign for is to get that better protection uh, put put in uh, in the workplace. And I think, you know, in, in the NHS, the government sort of slightly glossed over and put some very lame arrangements in place. But uh, we know that when it comes to uh, mental health, we're, we're only just, we're not even seeing the uh, evidence that's going to emerge of what our key workers have gone through. Um, I think there's going to be an accumulated impact and there's much work to be done in this particular area. And we're already working with some employers, certainly in local government, to look at what kind of mental health uh, strategies we can put in place to protect uh, workers on the key front line. But um, I, I think I would rather sort of share some of the more detailed stuff in writing with, with uh, yourself so that you've got a proper overview of what our strategies on this. Well, that's very kind to make that offer. I, I hope it's not too much of a burden to have to write it up, but we would appreciate it. It, it will all be published uh, in the longer term. But uh, may I thank you for your time today and the evidence you've given. And go back to Lorna Hackett, please, for the next witness. Thank you, Mr Mansfield. Um, the next witness is Professor Anthony Costello. Good evening. Good evening, Professor Costello. Um, I have a witness statement here from you, um, quite a lengthy witness statement, thank you for the detail. Um, and it is dated the 19th of March um, and signed by you. Uh, and you have confirmed that the opinions you've expressed represent your true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Is that correct? Correct. Thank you. Uh, could you uh, give your occupation to the panel, please? Well, I'm a professor of global health and sustainable development at UCL. I, uh, I'm a paediatrician by training. And for three years, I was director of uh, maternal, child and adolescent health at the World Health Organization. Thank you. Um, and in terms of the, um, the, the pandemic, what is, what's your main role been over the last 12 months? Well, I was interested initially in how WHO and member states would respond to this, but given my background there. But, um, you know, and I have uh, expertise, if you like, in women and children's health, infection control, particularly community mobilisation, which is very important in pandemics. And we've done a lot of trials uh, on that. So uh, there are all those interests. But then, of course, when we weren't getting a public health response uh, and I became deeply concerned in March and started tweeting a bit about it. Um, eventually I met, uh, I was contacted by Sir David King and the, a group called the Citizens and I helped them to set up Independence Saves which aimed to give a broader public health voice to uh, science and uh, you know advice to government actually and also to have a gender balanced and uh, black and ethnic minority balanced panel as well. 
Um, uh, just a, a preliminary question, if I may. I'm going to um, make reference to uh, an article which is uh, has been authored by uh, another witness, but at the, it's an article in the British Medical Journal uh, by Michael pa Baker, uh, and it talks about five different strategies for uh, the ways to respond to a, a pandemic, starting with an exclusion strategy, um, i.e. excluding a disease from, a, from an area, um, it, which you might get from a Pacific Island country or S Samoa, places like that. Elimination strategies, China, Taiwan, New Zealand. Uh, suppression, um, mainly Europe and North America. Mitigation, and then of course, no substantive strategy at all. Um, in your evidence, you talk about suppression and containment. And I just wondered if you could just clarify for the panel what you mean by those words. Well, we, you'll probably come on to zero COVID as well. But um, uh, look, you cannot eradicate a virus. We've, we've, we've been absolutely clear about that from day one. A virus like this is going to be with us uh, for a long time. But you can try to eliminate it. And by that, we mean that you're going to use public health measures and population immunity produced either by a vaccine or by natural infection, which will eventually suppress community transmission. And uh, containment is very much um, the public health component of it. And the herd immunity component, as I say, can be induced by ideally a vaccine. And in trivial infections like the common cold, you build up some herd immunity from from natural infection. So suppression means, I mean, in a sense, zero COVID ultimately uh, is a policy that um, is aiming to have zero tolerance of viral spread. And that's what I mean by suppression. That doesn't mean that you're always gonna be successful. There will be outbreaks as there have been in many of the Asian states, but they effectively have followed the World Health Organization advice, which is very basic, actually, in infection, in an epidemic like this or a pandemic, you have to find the virus, you have to isolate the people who've got it as quickly as possible, you test them to verify they've got it, and you want to follow up contacts, both forward contacts and backward contacts, to lock down and suppress this virus. And the most important thing is you have to act fast. And so I think that was the key thing. And during February last year, I mean, the whole thing exploded in sort of mid-January. And as early as January the 23rd, there was a WHO meeting on the public health emergency of international concern. They deferred that until Dr. Tedros got back from, from visiting China. But by that period, we knew this was exploding. We knew this had a mortality rate much higher than the flu. And uh, we knew that we had to act fast. And in fact, Mike Ryan, the head of emergencies at WHO, had a very long press conference and repeatedly said from the 29th of January onwards, you've got to act fast. Don't delay. Go in and lock this down as quickly as possible. So um, I'm going to ask you quite a long question now. Um, we heard at our last session of the advice to the public not to call their GP practice if unwell with COVID symptoms 
but instead to call NHS 111. We also heard how, as a consequence, people tragically died at home after illnesses of several days without ever having been seen or having spoken to a doctor. Um, so in your opinion, what are the relative contributions to the high COVID death toll in the UK of one, the failure to adopt a suppression approach in relation to two, the advice to call NHS 111 and not a medical practitioner, three, the discharge from hospital of COVID positive patients to care homes, four, the wholly inadequate provision of PPE to health and care workers, and five, the running down of NHS intensive care capacity over the previous decade. Wow, thank you. That's a nice, simple. How long have you got? Um, I Is mean, there part of the question you'd like to, uh, as it were, well, leave I, to one I, side I mean, and, and reply I, later? All of them are linked to how you develop a pandemic suppression public health orientated strategy. And we didn't know who was advising the government in February or, or even March. We didn't know what they were saying. Uh, but now we do have that information. What shocked me most of all was that the scientific advisory group of experts had no public health independent voice. No one. They did have some people from Public Health England who could attend, but they're not independent. When I worked at WHO, I was told, clearly, you're no longer independent. Your job is to facilitate independent experts from outside who come in. And on SAGE, they had five mathematical, you know, background people. They had clinical uh, epidemiologists and infectious disease people, but they did not have a public health person who would immediately have said, why aren't we jumping in fast? And we didn't do that. We focused on a pandemic influenza plan. And that was not coronavirus. And in influenza, you don't try and test and, and contact trace because the generation interval of the, of the virus is too short. But it was clear with the first SARS and with smallpox and others, you can do that with this virus. And, and then they introduce weird ideas like this concept of self-isolation, which I think is, in all honesty, an oxymoron. I'm going to step in, you've frozen. Is there a... You need to go and reassure people. If you're suddenly told you've got an, a, a potentially life-threatening infection, I think my... Is my internet okay? Yes, you it, 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 It's breaking up a little bit. Just I freeze keep... then. Yes, you did, yes. But don't worry, keep going. Okay. I mean, beyond, they did not decide to implement a testing programme. They said, we can't do it. When we clearly could have done it, we had 44... I'm just getting, handful I'm just... of labs that's run by Public Health England. They didn't try to set up a... I I'm just going to intervene because... Hello. Yeah. yeah, you're breaking up quite a bit of the time. I'm just going to pause for a minute because if it's uh, very difficult to continue, we're probably missing probably quite vital words that you're uttering. Um, Is that better? Yeah. I'm sorry to 
No, it's it's right. just... Clear. I'm not. I'm on a. I'm on a. In a strange place in New Yorkshire where we don't have Wi-Fi, but I'm closer to my phone now, and it is on four bars. So I'm going to stand if that's all right and keep talking. Can you hear yeah. me? Okay. Yes, and see you. Thank you very much. Okay. So I, I mean, for all these reasons, um, a lot of the things that should have happened didn't happen. And the policy was being led by people that didn't have public health or pandemic control experience. So we didn't set up an appropriate contact tracing. We didn't follow what, for example, South Korea or Taiwan or China had done very quickly in February. So um, uh, they set up, for example, in Wuhan, they moved in within two weeks, 9,000 contact tracers. Okay, for 11 million population. For the UK, we would have needed 50,000. For England and Wales, about 40,000. In fact, we could have done that. You, you know, when they called for volunteers, they had 750,000 people volunteered. They weren't used. Uh, at least 40,000, I would think, would have been retired nurses, doctors, people with ability to move into vulnerable communities and understand how to reach out to people. We didn't approach with suppression. And it, what's interesting is that this went on into March, even though on the 27th of February, a SAGE meeting uh, reviewed their reasonable worst-case scenario and they said 80% of the UK population may become infected with a 1% fatality rate. That's on the 27th of March. That's five days before the Prime Minister had turned up to even one COBRA meeting. I mean, he missed five. So the, the experts were saying this was the scale of the problem, yet they hadn't launched any test or trace serious scheme. I mean, I think we had at peak 270 contact tracers under Public Health England. And um, then on the March the 13th, having known about all of this um, and, and it becoming clear that actually a public health approach was suppressing the epidemics in both China, South Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan, etc., um, they got a bit worried and Sage said, well, they were unanimous that measures seeking to completely suppress the spread of COVID-19 will inevitably cause a second peak. And they said it's a near certainty that countries such as China, where heavy suppression is underway, will experience a second peak once measures are relaxed. That hasn't happened. I mean, China has a death rate of three per million. Ours is nearly 1,900 per million. So, and actually, South Korea, um, who also just focused on uh, mobilization of community health workers, mobile testing, and locking down people, has currently, I think, a, a death rate of around 33 per million. So, suppression has worked in all the countries that have tried it or attempted it. We never did that. And I'll just point to one final thing, which I find interesting that there was a very senior person in the Imperial College group, number two to Neil Ferguson, Professor Stephen Riley, and he submitted a report to SAGE on March the 9th, which was extremely clear in laying out why a uh, containment policy with contact tracing, testing and the like, would be much more likely 
to reduce deaths than one that was based on mitigation. He submitted it, he said, flattening the curve. Um, uh, he said, my results directly support current advice from WHO and are consistent with policy decisions made by effectively all the Asian states. So, and he said, you know, far more people would be infected than would be the case with ongoing um, mitigation and far more will die. So they knew about this and no action was taken. And I believe if there had been public health people on that committee giving advice to government, they would have some, said something wholly different. Now, to answer your question, <laughs> um, hang on, what were they? Uh, well, with regards to all of that, 111 was the direct result of them ignoring and bypassing primary care. If they had built testing into the primary care system, we've got the best primary care system in the world, actually. And we have everybody on the books. We have everybody's data. Look at how the NHS primary care system has responded to vaccination. It's been magnificent. It's 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 done its job, you know, in spades. But actually, if you look at initially setting up separate testing, separate tracing, and a 111 system, which didn't have data linked into primary care, meant that people were being told that they had a potentially fatal disease, and the GP was not being told, and they were not being linked together. And if we'd had contact tracers and volunteer medical staff to help out with primary care networks, we could have set up a system that would have been much more comprehensive in locking this down. And we knew about this at the end of January. We knew about this at the end of January. So, you know, and it was March the 12th when they decided to stop all attempts at testing and tracing at a time when more than 50 districts in the country had fewer than 50 cases fewer than 10 cases, I beg your pardon. And, you know, I mean, it was at very low levels in many parts of the country, and we just abandoned it. And so we, we let this, we basically took it on the chin, and the results are there to see. I think we're up to 147,000 deaths. Mm -hmm. um, linked to PPE, well, that links to the longer-term uh, problems with um, pandemic planning, uh, which we could go into. Um, ICU capacity, I think, was about a third of what was found in Germany. And some modelers believe that a lot of the, you know, Germany also had a much better system for isolation. But a lot of the, they had surge capacity. And that meant that people, particularly in the first wave, got much better treatment in Germany than they got overall in the UK although the UK did a great job. I think, you know, the, the ICU and the NHS has responded absolutely magnificently. But um, it, it is arguable that, that uh, there were some people that were placed in an invidious position in treating intensive care patients. And in the second wave, of course, they've been under huge pressure, huge pressure. Uh, slightly different question. Uh, at the start of this year, the third lockdown, um, it was supposed to last until the vaccination of the 70s by about mid-February, yet nothing has happened to ease lockdown until three weeks later when the schools reopened. Are we being subject to a zero Covid strategy by stealth? 
public health stuff. Uh, we're, we basically, our strategy is vaccines and lockdowns. Mm -hmm. And um, they're praying, and I hope they're right, that with the rapid rollout of vaccines, we'll eventually reach some kind of population immunity. And that will uh, suppress things sufficiently to give us time to get booster vaccines in impossible. And I hope that works. I really do. But um, the problem is, you know, we've they've now failed four times, actually, to implement proper test, trace and isolate. First in February last year, again in July, when after a lockdown that lasted twice as long as the partial lockdown in China. Listen, I'm not pro-lockdown. Absolutely not. Zero COVID doesn't mean pro-lockdown. It means if you if you contain and suppress this virus, you're not going to have a lockdown. China's never had a national lockdown, nor is South Korea, nor is Taiwan, nor is Singapore, nor is most of them have not. They've done it through partial lockdowns and absolute attention to detail, like Iceland, like Finland, to a lesser extent in Norway. And... Um... What happens if the vaccines don't work? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, the vaccines clearly are working and they're much better than we had reason to expect last year. We, many people thought, you know, we would get 50% protective efficacy at best. They're much better than that. And they probably are even better at protecting against serious disease than in actually preventing uh, infection. So we've got good vaccines. There is the risk, as you know, of variants and the South African variant does seem to be pretty resistant to the immunity, particularly from AstraZeneca vaccine. And there's about 10%, I think, carriage in France of that. So this is something we have to be aware of. But in theory, we, we should be able to handle that in the sense that every year we have a different flu vaccine. And there is there are clear protocols at the WHO about how they proceed with that and an agreement to develop. So, you know, we have the technology to produce it. It does seem likely that, it, you know, after our two shots that we're probably going to need a booster of perhaps a different vaccine later in the year. And we might need annual vaccinations for all I know. Uh, and in light of all that you've said, is it now too late to change strategy? No, of course not. They could have changed it at any time. We've been banging on about this on Independence Age with such monotonous regularity in our Friday public meetings and also, um, you know, in the media constantly saying, look, why have we not used public health? Now, I'll give you one example um, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote to a public health director in the north of England and said, how many people do you have on contact tracing? Because we know that local public health teams do a much better job than the call centre people. So, um, and he said, well, I've got 19 contact tracers. That's for 150,000 and all of it, 150,000 population. So by my, you know, if we were doing Wuhan, he'd have 100 contact tracers and they would be all part of a team and managed by the public health team and the primary care networks. Um, and all of what they've got at the moment is funded through their standard public health allowance. So they haven't had any of the 37 billion that I'm aware of, unless some of it has gone into the routine public health spending, which of course, as we know, has been steadily cut over the past seven years. So, so there's no evidence 
even tried to get on top of contact tracing. Mm. And particularly now, I mean, Sir Patrick Vallance did say last week, and the week, or was it the week before, that, you know, as the number of cases comes down, find, test, trace and isolate becomes even more important. But we don't have a tracing system that works. We don't have an isolation system that works because there's no incentive there uh, for many poor people to isolate. Many will avoid even getting tested because they'll lose income and they won't be replaced with any kind of COVID support. Um, thank you. I don't have any, I probably don't have any time for any more questions from me, but I would like to hand you back to the panel uh, who I'm sure will have some questions for you. So thank you very much, Professor Anthony Costello. Michael Mansfield. Uh, yeah, it's really following on from these questions because as I put in the introduction today, we we have set this up in order to learn lessons, and you've indicated this where where things have gone wrong. Uh, in relation, therefore, to the lessons that you're, as it were, mapping out that have gone uh, gone wrong, where do we go from here? Is it is it well we rely on the vaccine and lockdown, or are we saying you've just added the fine test and trace? What is the main lesson to a government? facing the possibility of a third wave, possibi the possibility of variants, the possibility of blocks on AstraZeneca and so on. What, what's the strategy that you think that should be incorporated at the moment? Well, you need this combination of rolling out your vaccines quickly to build your population immunity together with a containment strategy. Look, we've got up to 28 million people vaccinated. You know, most of those are going to be protected. There'll be a few that won't be, maybe. Uh, but we've still got 40 million people that haven't been vaccinated, including, of course, children that are not supposed to be vaccinated yet. Although if it's going to be safe, that policy uh, may change. But the problem is that there is still the possibility that uh, community transmission as we open up will spread amongst this wider group of people. Now, deaths are likely to be much lower because we vaccinated the most vulnerable, but a lot of poor people, frontline workers, uh, and people with underlying conditions will still be vulnerable. And so we could easily see large numbers of people going back into hospital and quite a few going into intensive care units. So the question is, how do, how do we prevent this? How do we circumvent well, I, It's back to, I, I would be putting in place now, shifting the, the strategy of this ludicrous separate um, a test trace system and investing money in public health, giving them the contact traces they need, linking testing and testing information into general practices and primary care networks and public health, so that there is an integrated response to this. And communities who know their area, they know their vulnerable groups. And if we have people in the community doing this, that's been the secret of all the countries that have done well to lock this down. We've failed up to now, but we still need that in place to support the vaccination policy, especially if we're going to have periods where variants arise and we want to lock down new outbreaks. Just another thing, Boris Johnson's quite wrong to say that a third surge is coming from Europe. The surge in Europe at the moment is our second surge of the British variant, which they've now got worse than us. But we do risk having a third surge later in the year for other reasons, whether it's a new variant 
or because of persisting numbers of people who are vaccine hesitant and the like. And again, vaccine hesitancy is something dealt with best by people on the ground and people from the communities where people are most hesitant. Dr. Ernie, please. Thank you, Professor Costello. I just want to pick up on the points from a global perspective you made, because you, you mentioned about initially being interested from a WHO perspective and also the point you made about the emergence of new strains. So what do you think we should have, in what ways did we deviate from the WHO strategy, either in the, in the initial or did we, did we go along with even the WHO strategy? Um, initially and over the last year and relatedly do you think we're doing enough or what do you think we should be doing in terms of um, vaccine access globally to reduce the risk of emergence of new strains elsewhere which we obviously would then have to deal with so could you speak to that global context both yeah. who and, and our response to that? i mean i think who it got you know it was caught between trump and uh, the chinese president early on and you know, they got a good kicking, but it was unfair, actually, because by and large, they put out the right principles. They they put out a call in um, early February for $675 million to support poorer countries. And when I met Tedros a month later in Geneva, and I happened to run into him and I said, how are you doing with your 675? He said, do you know how much we've actually received? And I said, no. He said, $1.2 million. That is after six weeks of a pandemic. I mean, it beggars belief that they have to get the begging bowl out like that. But um, in, a, in February, I think it was around about, I may have got the date wrong, February the 27th or something. The, the, the sage actually said, look, we, don't, we have pretty low confidence in our modeling. We need to learn from other countries like China and Korea. Yet, three, you know, two or three days earlier, the China report had been published by WHO. Uh, by Bruce Aylward and colleagues, which lays out in great clarity that although China totally screwed up for the first month by not releasing information and not sharing data, uh, they responded once they got their act together very quickly with very effective methods. And we should have been quoting that. We should have been responding to that and sharing that with the prime minister. But clearly that didn't seem to happen. Uh, and in early March, we had all the fiasco of spread across Westminster I mean, the budget on March, the, I remember tweeting March the 11th saying, this is crazy having a budget in the House of Parliament because, you know, we knew that Nadine Doris, the minister, had gone down with COVID nine days earlier. Why were we doing this? But on your final question of, of, of global equ vaccine equity, this is immensely important. We need the money and we need the mechanisms to ensure that everyone in the world who needs it can get a vaccine. At the moment, COVAX can only commit to 2 billion doses by the end of this year, of which 1 billion will go to low-income countries. That will only deal with 20% of the population. And if we're, you know, we're all in this together, and if we're not going to provide uh, the funding and the access to 
vaccines, which touches on all issues around intellectual property and voluntary agreements and the like, then we're going to be in this for a very long time. And it's been disappointing to see that the G20 have not come together to really pull together a strategy and the finance to ensure that this happens. Because we've seen the economic damage that countries that have not suppressed the virus, like us, have suffered compared to those who are now having pretty normal economies and lives because they acted quick. I'm going to, uh, as it were, draw a curtain because it's fascinating, but I'm afraid that we've really run out of time. But thank you very much, Professor. I believe there is now going to be a few minute break while captions are written, and then we'll be back again. Uh, that we will have a test track and trace operation uh, that will be world beating. And yes, it will be in place. It will be in place by June the 1st. And just to re repeat the figure, since he's invited me to do so, uh, there will be 25,000 trackers. They will be able to cope with 10,000 new cases a day. And that's very, very important because currently new cases are running at about two and a, two and a half uh, thousand a day. They'll be able to trace the contacts of those new cases and to stop the disease spreading. And what I hope very much is that notwithstanding uh, you know, the, the occasional difficulty of these exchanges, I, I totally appreciate uh, the, the role that, that, that he has to fulfill, uh, that he will support us as we go forward, uh, that he will be positive about this test track and trace operation, and that we can work together to use it to take our country forward. Because that is what I think the people of this country want to see. May that it was switching to a Google Apple approach because it realised that it, it wasn't working developing a bespoke app. Has it taken us too long to realise that this is not something that we can do ourselves? Is that because we were too fixated on being world beating? Uh, no, actually, quite the contrary, Heather. You know, I'm from Newmarket. We backed both horses. Uh, so we took the decision in May uh, to start building the Google Apple version as well. And then because we've been able, we've built both, we could then test both. And actually, the best way to get new technology uh, going is to, um, is to test different uh, approaches. Uh, and this often happens as a standard approach in the uh, commercial world, for instance, uh, and um, far better to go with both versions. And we've now got problems uh, with both versions, and but there's parts of each that can come together to put to build something that's uh, uh, that's stronger than either version there is. The reality is, if we hadn't backed both horses, we wouldn't have a way forward. Precisely because we've developed our own and we've developed some really sophisticated um, distance calculations, we think that we can enhance the Google Apple platform such that it will work. If we hadn't backed both, we wouldn't be able to do that. Right. Can I um, welcome everybody back? I'm sorry for the short break, but it's necessary for lots of good reasons. So may I hand back, please, to Council Lorna Hackett for the next witness. Thank you, Mr Mansfield. Uh, the next witness is Professor Michael Baker. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Um, thank you for your witness statement. 
Um, I have a statement here dated the 20th of March 2021 um, and your signature above which there is the declaration I confirm that the opinions I've expressed represent my true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Is that correct? That's correct. Thank you. I, I also have uh, three uh, articles, a British Medical Journal article uh, written by um, you and some colleagues, um, a, a, an article in New England Journal of Medicine um, entitled Successful Elimination in COVID Transmission in New Zealand, and thirdly, an article on New Zealand's COVID-19 elimination strategy, which were appended very helpfully to your witness statement. Um, can you confirm that you were the author or co-author of those three uh, articles. Yes, that's correct. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start, um, if I may, for uh, just with, I, I talked about this with, with a, another witness. Um, the article in the British Medical Journal talks about five different approaches. The uh, exclusion strategy being sort of walls up, essentially, uh, gates closed, um, elimination strategy, suppression, mitigation, and no substantive strategy. Um, which did New Zealand opt for and um, why? Well, I think like most countries uh, across the globe, we started off with a pandemic influenza plan that had mitigation as its dominant model, and that's to flatten the curve. But um, by um, uh, early March, when we'd seen a success, that was well-documented success of Asian countries in containing the virus, and uh, a very helpful report uh, from the joint mission to China from the World Health Organization that I think the previous witness referred to uh, by Alwood and co. Um, we decided, uh, some of us decided to advocate very strongly for an application that contained approach, which is also called elimination. And so that became the dominant model in New Zealand. Um, I've just realised I've completely failed to introduce you and your occupation. So just for the for the record, could you confirm uh, what your occupation is, please? Well, I'm a specialist public health physician and I'm employed by the University of Otago in Wellington at the clinical school as a professor of public health. And um, since January 2020, um, I understand you've been a member of the New Zealand Ministry of Health's COVID-19 Technical Advisory Group, or TAG, is that correct? That's great. Uh, so in terms of the way in which New Zealand um, decided to uh, tackle COVID-19, uh, I think we'd be interested to learn what, what the United Kingdom could learn from the way in which um, you initially identified, of course, the, the uh, mitigation strategy and then moved to elimination. So if you could explain a bit about that, that would be very helpful. Well, I think it's it, core thinking in infectious disease control is that you have a fork in the road when you move from either control or elimination. Mm. And basically, with most serious infectious diseases, some effort is made to control them. And that applies to both endemic and pandemic disease. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, if um, you have the resources and you think um, it's justifiable, so it's feasible and desirable, uh, you would try and eliminate the infection in the population. Mm -hmm. And that dichotomy has been well established probably for uh, three decades in infectious disease epidemiology. And there are, of course, models for all of those approaches. Uh, and uh, 
And there are examples, obviously, of um, diseases um, like measles, for example, and rubella, where uh, most countries across the Western world, and in fact, even in some low and middle income countries, have uh, measles and rubella elimination strategies and have succeeded in that area. And I think the UK is also in that group. Uh, so the idea that you um, of uh, elimination is very well established. Similarly, for even an emerging disease like Ebola, there would be a view that you would be trying to eliminate the infection entirely. You would not be tolerating ongoing transmission in a population. So early in the pandemic, uh, we in New Zealand came to the conclusion that um, elimination was by far the preferable strategy. Um, I've got a, a question from a member of the public here. Kerry Ostra asks, and it's, it's three questions, but they're pretty short. Um, one is, how did COVID-19 begin in New Zealand? Um, secondly, has New Zealand had many variants of COVID in the past year? And can New Zealand reach a COVID-free status? Uh, yes, well, basically, um, the... Um, COVID-19 began in New Zealand, like um, all countries, I guess, outside um, China, where we assume all cases were first detected by importing disease. Mm -hmm. So we had our first imported case in February, and very quickly we could see that we were starting on the exponential increase. So the disease was transitioning from imported cases to local transmission. And that was a point we realized that we, we only had a few days to make a decisive decision. And this is basic risk assessment, risk management. Our risk assessment was that um, because of the nature of spread, the high level of it's highly transmissible, the virus, and also uh, there's considerable transmission from people, particularly in pre-symptomatic state, that we needed to act quickly to avoid following uh, the trajectory of many countries around the globe, where the virus was seeded. And initially you see very small numbers, but you have a window of opportunity so that was when we acted. And um, today is actually very symbolic because exactly one year ago today was um, Elimination Day for New Zealand. So we went into the most intense lockdown um, that we could do. It was by even using the Oxford stringency index, it's very high on that scale, approaching 100%. Uh, and that was a courageous move by the government because at that point, when they made the decision, we had only 102 cases and no deaths in New Zealand. So they were basically listening to the science and saying that is going to be give optimal protection for public health in New Zealand. Um, we weren't sure about um, how effective it would be or um, the other consequences, um, but that was our, our political leaders basically followed the science. We'd done the modeling for the government about the likely impact of a poorly controlled pandemic in New Zealand, or one with even moderate control. And that's when our leaders decided to follow that path. Mm -hmm. So the second part of your question was about variants. Um, mm -hmm. we, we have um, most of the uh, global diversity of um, the virus um, is being seen in New Zealand, but it's been seen in people who are in quarantine. So um, our quarantine system is now um, allowed um, about 120,000 people to cross the border into New Zealand um, in relative safety in terms of uh, introducing the virus. So people go into two weeks quarantine, they have two, usually three tests before they're allowed out into the community. And 
this system's not perfect and we have the occasional um, incursion of water failure, but it has been manageable. And I think um, the third question about um, zero COVID, mm -hmm. well, we are, we've achieved what we would regard as zero COVID, that is um, that we um, are aspiring to maintain elimination uh, and we have had zero COVID in the, and, and we define that as um, 28 days without any detected case in the community despite high volume testing. And we have achieved that for most of the last year in this country. Thank you. I just want to take you back to um, the, the, the point you made earlier about um, it being a, a poignant day and that it was uh, a year ago today that uh, New Zealand decided to go into lockdown and that was pretty early on. Um, in this country, we heard last week that there was uh, the, the government was concerned that uh, there might not be um, compliance or that people would risk um, pandemic fatigue in going into lockdown. Um, how was there anything or were there any concerns similar to that in New Zealand that you were aware of? Uh, the word concerns because our goal in elimination or our goal in going to lockdown was to eliminate the virus. So we and our our proposal to the government was to have um, a short intense lockdown with the explicit goal of having no transmission in the community. And we emerged after seven weeks that effectively a stay at home order with no virus in New Zealand that we could detect. And we contrasted this with the alternative approach of going in and out of lockdowns uh, for um, an indefinite period until there were other um, interventions. And of course, at that stage, the options would be um, effective vaccines and or effective antivirals or very good therapeutics that would um, make the disease more manageable. But we said, look, um, the big um, benefit of going into an intense lockdown is now is that we um, don't have any, we have zero COVID in the community. Mm -hmm. Initially, and this is, um, I guess for me, a key moment about uh, a week prior to this was New Zealand introduced a four level alert level system that we'd adapted from the system being used in Singapore. And the debate was, yes, we would have the system and we would work up the alert levels as the pandemic got more intense to basically mitigate it more effectively. And myself and some colleagues argued very strongly that we should do this in the reverse order. We should start at the, at the highest level of containment to basically eliminate the virus rather than um, going in the other, other direction. And so we just turned it on its head and that's actually what the government adopted. Okay. Um, so what happened to not just New Zealand, but other countries that adopted the zero COVID elimination strategy, what happened to the economies and the, and the schools um, in those economies as a result well, of that strategy? Yeah, I think an elimination strategy has um, proven to be very um, effective um, at allowing the return of normal activity. So this is normal uh, economic activity, social and educational activities. So New Zealand has spent um, very little time under lockdown um, over the last um, year. And that's again based on using the Oxford Stringency Index. Um, far less time, say, than uh, Sweden, UK, um, US and Australia, uh, because um, it was short and intense. We've had um, two other times when we've had to use more focused lockdowns 
in Auckland when they've had outbreaks, that we have not returned to the highest level of lockdown at all. We haven't needed to. So um, educational activities have been fairly affected uh, and since the initial uh, lockdown period. Mm -hmm. And as the, uh, our, the article in the British Medical Journal noted, uh, the countries achieving, that have achieved um, elimination have protected public health. Obviously, they've had far lower COVID-19 mortality, but also they've, they've had less economic contraction. And this was based on estimates um, uh, for um, GDP for all of last year. And obviously, these estimates are being firmed up now. Um, they're not available for all countries yet, I don't think, but they are confirming that that is the case. And some countries actually experiencing net economic growth last year, including China and Taiwan. Now, New Zealand is less densely populated and more remote than the United Kingdom. So would these differences suggest that different responses to COVID-19 could have been justified? Yes, I mean, New Zealand definitely had advantages of its geography and the ability to manage its borders intensely. And we had a little bit more time to um, work out an optimal approach. But I think it's worth um, recognizing that um, many countries in Asia have also succeeded with elimination approaches. Um, and Vietnam, I think, is um, a remarkable example. Uh, obviously, mainland China, but you know, also Taiwan and Mongolia, Laos, Cambodia, uh, Singapore. Um, they have already all um, done very well at um, minimizing the impact of the virus. They all have effectively elimination strategies in, in that they do not tolerate any circulating virus in the community. They have long complex borders, uh, many of those countries, uh, and very densely packed cities. Uh, so they have succeeded very well. So I think um, uh, elimination can work very well in a huge diversity of um, countries based on geography demographics and economic development. Um, and I'm conscious of the time. Overall, what, what are the lessons that have been learned here in respect of uh, if elimination is probably the preferred strategy for new infectious emerging diseases? Um, what have we learned about the way that different countries have um, implemented their own strategies? Is elimination the best option? Well, I think the evidence is, is very clear that it is. And we would actually say yes now that um, uh, uh, an approach of um, progressive elimination across the globe offers the best uh, potential to minimize impact from the pandemic and support rapid return to effective economic activity. Um, and we have, of course, you have to remember that um, uh, elimination has been achieved in a huge range, in this range of um, different settings using just public health measures. Vaccines have only really um, added addition, an additional tool quite recently. And of course they make elimination much easier. Thank you. Um, I uh, would love to ask you some more questions, but Professor Michael Baker, I think the panel would probably like to ask you some questions as well. So I'm going to hand you back to Michael Mansfield. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I have one question and uh, it's uh, devil's advocate. <laughs> which sometimes that's what I'm thought of as. Uh, the question is, it's a, termination, it's a terminological issue. Because if you talk about elimination, uh, I have a vision of what that means. 
if you talk about containment, I have a vision of that. But what you've talked about, it seems to me, is containment, not elimination. Because I'm looking at the other evidence that we've heard is that you cannot eliminate such a, a virus as this. It will always be with us. However, it may be contained. Now, does it matter the, the terminology or have I got the definitions wrong? Or, or can, can you just help on that this year? Yeah, that's a very good point. And our political leaders did not want to use the word elimination for several weeks, even though we embraced an elimination approach. The reason we have used um, control and elimination, that terminology, is it's got, um, it's been in infectious disease thinking for three decades. The World Health Organization uses that framing consistently. Um, much of the world has, I think every country on earth has a polio elimination goal contributing to global eradication. So that typology is so universal. We adopted that framing because that's what the World Health Organization uses and it's just universally understood. And also almost every country, certainly uh, I think every WHO region has was working towards measles and rubella elimination towards the, the ultimate goal of global eradication. So there's a whole divisions of the World Health Organization focused on elimination and they use the term consistently. So um, I don't know, they don't talk about zero measles or measles containment, it's measles elimination. So we just assumed, in fact, this is still my greatest surprise from um, how the Western world assessed this uh, pandemic was in March, I thought every country on earth would be saying, we will follow the success of China in elimination and other well-documented, I mean, this is a report that the World Health Organization itself produced and was sitting on their website at the end of February. I just thought we were just following WHO's, um, the knowledge that it had provided to all of us and these frame frameworks. Right, thank you. That's a, a very clear exposition. I think we have time. I'm sorry, I'm looking at the time. We have time for another question if somebody has one. No? Well, no, there isn't, I don't think. Um, oh, there is. I thought you were yes, scratching on it. That, 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 thank you very much. Very, very quick, quickly. Professor Baker, um, SARS-CoV-2 is an unstable virus. Um, we've, we've seen the emergence of multiple variants around the world, which is a different situation to, say, say measles or, 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 or polio. Could you comment on the effect that that should, the, should be taken into account in the strategies for combating it? Please. Yes. Um, well, I think that situation increases the, the need for an elimination approach because uh, it may make vaccines tougher as a as a tool to to sustain. Um, obviously, uh, the great thing about um, what the last year, I mean, the two great lessons from the last year is that traditional public health measures can um, eliminate this virus over large um, uh, regions of the world. And the second amazing accomplishment, of course, is um, the development of vaccines. But given how the virus, um, there are multiple variants, there is selective pressure of course, favoring variants that are more transmissible and also that evade um, vaccines. And this pressure may get greater as we roll out vaccines. So I would say that strengthens the need for a global elimination or progressive elimination. 
because these measures work regardless of um, the virus, its structure and its behavior. We know they, they're working well in New Zealand against a wide range of variants. And also by dampening down transmission, we reduce selective pressure favoring new variants. So I think it actually supports the progressive elimination approach very well, that feature you described, and gives us a better chance of this uh, succeeding in this arms race with vaccine development getting ahead of viral evolution. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Professor. Uh, I hand back to Lorna Hackett for the last witness today. Uh, we can't hear you, I'm afraid. Thank you. Sorry about that. Uh, the last witness uh, for today's uh, panel is uh, Janet Harris. Hi, I'm here, but I'm oh. not sure about the video. Yes, we can't see you. I've tried start video, but it's saying unable to start. Post has stopped it. Oh. Start my video. Yes. There we are. Hello. Hello. Good evening. Uh, thank you very much for your witness statement. Um, I have a statement here, um, which you have very kindly prepared for this evening's uh, hearing, dated the 19th of March, 2021, um, and you've signed it um, and declared above, I confirm that the opinions I've expressed represent my true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Uh, is that correct? That's correct. Thank you. Um, could you give the uh, panel your uh, job title or role occupation? I'm a semi-retired public health professional and I'm currently working with a group which is called the Sheffield Community Contact Tracers and my specialist area of expertise is community mobilization. Um, and what have you um, specifically been doing during the pandemic and how does it relate to your previous experience? Well, my previous experience going back a bit was um, started in the days of HIV AIDS when I worked for the Centers for Disease Control and Massachusetts Department of Public Health. And I originally became involved in communicable disease control at the very beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, Massachusetts is an area roughly the size of Yorkshire. Uh, it has 30 different racial and ethnic groups. Um, and we had to get off the ground quite quickly. And as you know, with HIV AIDS, um, we were facing an epidemic that moved through different population groups in a very short period of time. Um, in that situation, we had a very difficult time reaching different racial and ethnic groups because of the stigma. We also had a difficult time recruiting people for uh, prevalence surveillance, HIV counseling and testing. Uh, no one wanted to work in that area. Um, difficult to rec recruit medics as well. So my job was to mobilize a department um, that moved from three people to 60 people in the course of about nine months, um, simultaneously train up the counseling and testing staff um, develop community-based contact tracing because it was, to be honest, it was the only way we were going to be able to get it off the ground. And um, that's what we did. So I was quite interested and, and I returned to England like 
25, 30 years ago and have been working in University of Sheffield School of Health and Related Research and also um, director of the University of Oxford um, Masters in DPhil and Evidence-Based Healthcare for 10 years. So that's my background. Thank you. Um, so when the um, when we first the pandemic first hit, what, what did you do? What was your role? When it first hit, there was a group of us who were retired uh, directors of public health and uh, nurses, uh, academics, public health specialists, GPs, and other medics who came together because two people in the group came down with COVID, um, a GP and his, his partner. And it became obvious that um, there was a problem with the contact tracing system. So people who knew each other in the original core group asked, what's going on here? Why aren't things working better than they are? Um, why has the government adopted this policy of a national top-down test and trace program? And is it possible to do local community-based contact tracing? So the first thing that was done last spring was uh, basically a feasibility pilot where um, we asked, is it possible? Because at that point in time, um, as you know, it was national people uh, setting up the program, not local. Local were not involved at all. So we asked, is it possible to recruit volunteers to do contact tracing? And if they are recruited, can we train them? Can we train them to a standard that's acceptable using CDC and WHO um, guidelines for contact tracing? And if we can create a volunteer workforce, then is it possible to retrain, to retain them? What, what kind of support is actually needed to keep these people on the ground continuing to do the contact tracing? So the pilot was set up and a, and a formal evaluation was done. And the, the short answer was yes, it's possible to do this. Um, we then moved on to hospitals because we were wondering why isn't contact tracing being, doing among, being done among, amongst hospital patients. And with the collaboration of consultants in the Sheffield Teaching Hospitals, uh, we recruited medical students that we've been working with previously in our activities and um, also collaborated with public health to look at, is it possible to actually do contact tracing in a hospital setting? And what was found from that pilot was that um, approximately two thirds of the people that are in, in hospital currently are not contacted um, regarding COVID-19 and it is possible to do contact tracing in that setting. Um, the group has published and you probably have, the panel probably has some of this in there in their uh, documentation. Um, at last count, 11 opinion pieces in the BMJ. So over time, um, we've expanded beyond the community contact tracing to looking at what does the entire intervention look, look like, which has also already been brought up by some of the panelists tonight and also mentioned in the testimony from your last session. And uh, we think that really the contact tracing can't be isolated as previous witnesses have said from the other aspects of, of find, test, trace, support, and isolate, it needs to be part of an integrated package. So since we weren't allowed in Sheffield or any other local areas to do contact tracing, we moved on to saying, if we think of these as pieces of a puzzle that need to be integrated, 
then how can we work on the other pieces of the puzzle since we're not allowed to help with the contact tracing? So in since the summer, we've been focusing on working with the volunteers the voluntary and charitable sector, um, looking at is it possible to actually link in to the existing workforce there, not just the paid workers, but also the volunteers, and develop what we call COVID confidence, so that we have a, a kind of cadre of people who, once the local contact tracing starts up, are there very much on the front lines that can uh, not only support and endorse and, and endorse it, and give it some good PR because to be honest, it's gonna need that now. We have some damage control to do, but also be there as link workers so that once contacts are interviewed and uh, people are identified that they can very much step in and support with the need to, to help people isolate and to keep in touch with them while they're isolating to make sure they're supported and also to help them beyond isolation for when they've actually finished that period. So that's what we're doing. So, and that's, I suppose, the su support aspect of fine test trace. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you talk about COVID confidence and that there's, there's damage limitation and there's the repairs that need to be done because of the ways in which um, fine test trace isolate and support has been rolled out sort of nationally. Um, you talk in your witness statement about a significant lack of trust in the system. I'm interested in how that's come about and how it can be improved in your view. Well, I think I hope that I'm very much speaking for the communities we're working with because we do work in the different neighborhoods and they have regular sessions with us on Zoom where, where various people in the communities are talking about the issue of trust. So this comes from them. Um, although I would say that it very much chimes with my experience previously in HIV AIDS and, and other epidemics. There's different reasons for lack of trust. One reason, if you think of people who are immigrants and refugees, is that they come from governments and systems where they originally did not trust the government. They may be victims of abuse, political abuse, asylum seekers. Uh, so that's one area where there's a lack of trust. Um, lack of trust also happens with people in lower socioeconomic groups that are accustomed to being in positions where they really don't have any power and control. So there can be a kind of uh, reaction to uh, government or public health professionals who are trying to hand out messages, advising people what to do. Um, this doesn't just happen in pandemics. Uh, we found it in other places, for example, with smoking cessation campaigns. There's research in England showing that um, some of the really, really successful programs that are now being copied by the NHS are programs that ask to be supported without NHS branding. Okay, because the branding had a negative impact on people who felt that they were being spoken to by the nanny state and they were being told what to do. So to bring that back to the current pandemic, what we're hearing from the different communities is that they're receiving, as we know, many messages from many different layers of government. And these messages are first of all, hard to understand because they're not in a lot of the native languages of the people that we're trying to reach. Um, if they are in the native languages, a lot of them are in a written format. And we have people who have issues with literacy. 
We have another group of people that may not have issues with literacy, but that's not their preferred form of receiving information. Okay, so it's not resonating with them. Um, when the messages are translated into, into, the, into the language that they speak, that doesn't mean that the message is every day connecting to them in terms of helping them know what to do, okay? There's a difference between telling people what to do, self-isolate, ventilation in your house, wash your hands, and the lived situation of people and the circumstances they're in, and how do they actually translate that on the ground into something that they're able to manage to do. So there, there are some real issues there in, ter in terms of the messaging. And we started with confidence because we thought one of the ways to deal with this is to find out from people on the ground what kind of um, messages are going to resonate with them and, and are going to mean something and to start co-producing messages with communities rather than simply giving them information and telling them to use it. Um, and so, so in terms of the, how do you think that can be achieved then? Uh, because obviously the, the way that you, you've talked about the ways in which it's not working. So how would you, for example, make it more inclusive in terms of the messaging? Well, I can speak for Sheffield, but it's not just happening in Sheffield. I think we are achieving it. And the trick to achieving it is, first of all, develop relationships with different communities. Uh, once you've developed a relationship, find people in those communities that are interested in working with you to co-produce meaningful information. Make sure it's truly co-produced, because if it is, then the people who've worked on it with you feel like it's theirs. They own it. And if they feel like they own it, then they're going to share it with other people that they know. And sharing it informally, opportunistically, word of mouth is the best public health marketing that you can have, really. It's much better than a leaflet. It's important to have the leaflets send other things in the background to support what you're saying, but it really needs to start there. And it is happening now. Um, and we have people from the Sheffield City Council, the comms team, uh, public health professionals in the council that attend the meetings regularly. They take all of the information back to the comms team. So there's lots of co-production going on now. Um, and let's say that... Um... Let's say that this 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 kind of well co-production, as you call it, does does not succeed. Do you think we're at risk of a cycle of repeated lockdowns? Uh, and if so, how, how can we how can we improve the the current situation? How how do we get past this sort of status quo? Yes, I definitely think we're at risk of repeated. Well, who knows whether it's going to be repeated lockdown or not, but I, I, we're going to be taking a slow road if we are not involving local communities. And we can see that now with vaccine uptake. Okay, there's a real dif differential there. Um, the people who have the most and are able to do are the ones getting the vaccine. The people who have the less are the ones that are not taking it up as quickly. So I, as you can tell, because of my special interest, I feel really strongly that um, you need both approaches. So of course we need the top-down public health and the government endorsement of it, but you have, need to have a corresponding kind of mobilization from the ground up so that people who are actually living in the middle of this feel like they have some kind of control over what's happening and some practical ways to manage their life. So it needs to come from both hands. Um, and I do think there's, there are ways to do it. It's about forming partnerships. So um, like we have now, um, when you have regular meetings, um, people from all sectors need to be at the table. 
So you need the public health professionals and, and the government representation sitting alongside community leaders. Uh, you need the community anchor organizations involved because they have their ear to the ground. They already have trusted relationships in their communities. And then you need to decide what are the different areas of expertise, equal knowledge, community knowledge is equally as important as specialist knowledge, public health knowledge. And then how do you share out the tasks so that this kind of initiative is going to work? And that's what we need with the contact tracing. Okay, the contact tracing itself, I mentioned the damage control early and you asked about this. It's got a bad reputation now and it's widely acknowledged that the national system is not working. So we need to have some kind of reframing and rebranding of local contact tracing. What does that look like? Because if people hear local contact tracing, they're going to think it's the same as the national system where somebody calls me up that I don't know and asks me to name other people. So the way to work together, to use this as one scenario, is get your community anchor organizations, who now at least in Sheffield are funded to have what we call COVID champions, to start talking to members in every community, key opinion leaders, about the fact that local contact tracing is going to start. Explain to them what it is. Have them meet some of the people that are actually delivering the contact tracing so they can attach faces to names develop relationships with them, trusted relationships, give them a clear picture of how this is something that's gonna protect them, not something that's gonna penalize them or name other people. Let the contact tracers step in and do their work. And then on the tail end of the contact tracing, make sure that the contact tracers are referring right back to the link workers in the community, similar to what we do now with social prescribing, so that the person that's been identified that needs to self-isolate, as well as the people who've been named as possibly having been exposed to COVID-19, have interviews with link workers to find out what kind of support they need in order to manage the situation. Link workers, we already have them out there. They already know where the resources are in, in, in health and social care, and economic sectors. Um, link workers hook them up to what they need and follow up with them during the time that they're quarantining to make sure that they have the support they need and to help them do that. This isn't a new thing, okay? Um, you know, our colleague from New Zealand tonight mentioned that there are models in other countries that are working. And if you look at those models, they have all of these pieces of the puzzle linked together, okay? It's not separate components. It's linked together. So what we really need is to have our GPs identifying the cases, knowing who the COVID champions are, referring people to COVID champions and contact tracers simultaneously at the same time so that they can work together. Um, Janet Harris, I am going to hand you back to the panel because um, I'm sure there'll be some questions from them and we are running out of time. So thank you very much. Those are all the questions I have time for. Michael Mansfield. Yeah. I'll Defer to Dr. Davis, as she's got a hand up. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to displace you there, but it, it's no, no, so, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. It's so desperate sitting here listening to person after person, showing that uh, what a what a terrible mistake it was to give test and trace to centralised companies like Circo with no experience at all. We've also heard 
um, this evening that it's not too late to change the government's mind. I mean, I, you know, if we had time, we could ask people where the £37 billion went. But um, since we've got you here, how could we demonstrate what really amounts to our moral outrage about what's happened um, and, and change the government's mind about this? Because you're describing to us how it could work, how we could avoid further out, uh, uh, you know, lockdowns, and yet we don't hear of any change of mind on their part. Well, I would hope that the, the um, people's testimony is going to collectively express moral outrage. And I would suggest at the same time as we do that, that what we need to do is simply get on with it. All right. I mean, there's nobody stopping us in Sheffield. As We're a volunteer group. We're sponsored by a, um, a local community anchor organization. Um, we're making sure that we maintain good relationships with the statutory sector and public health. There are a lot of things that people like us can do all over England in our, in our capacity as volunteers or as, as local workers and, and continue to develop that because a lot of it is about building the trust, the relationships, um, the professional working relationships, and hopefully have those in place so that now that the contact tracing is being developed with local authorities, now we're looking to say, how can we use all of these resources that we've been working to pull together to enhance what's going to happen with contact tracing in local authorities? That could look very different in different localities, but it's about having that dialogue with the local authority public health contact tracing team and saying, how can you best use us? Um, if you have limited resources, how can we best um, contribute to that? There will need to be some resource for it. Um, the big uh, sticking point I think we have right now is that in the voluntary and charitable sectors, um, they are traditionally underfunded in terms of the infrastructure. And a lot of them are doing this now on the back of what they're already doing without much extra funding. And so we do definitely need to look at resource, not just for the community organizations, but the funding we have for local authority contact tracing is time limited too. So we, I think we definitely need to be looking at what's the longer term plan over the next three or four years. Thank you. Yes. Uh, sorry. May do you I want to follow? Very quickly? Yeah. May I in very quickly? Yeah. John, very quickly, what could you do with 37 billion? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'd split it because you need the top-down approach, all right? But I think if we take a lesson from models in other places, for example, Massachusetts, Massachusetts has actually gone back in COVID to what they did in HIV-AIDS with the community collaborative. So you do take some money and invest it in a call center. Now, I know this is going to be very unpopular after our national experience here, but you invested in a call center, which is a company that has a proven track record long-term of working with the health sector, all right? Because that was one of the failings we had here. Um, you have a partnership with the public health department. So a, a, a section of the money goes to that. Um, you have a partnership with um, lead community organizations. For example, in, in Massachusetts, they're collaborating with Partners in Health, you know, Paul Farmer's group that did all the groundbreaking TB work in Haiti and other places. So you, you split the pot of money because money, equal split of money translates into equal partnership. And so that's where you have to start with it. Um, you, you, you know, work up your terms of agreement, um, what your collaboration is going to look like, uh, you know, who's going to deliver on what, have some key performance indicators for each of the sectors, meet regularly. 
there's something to do here with information flow and information governance, which I think has been a real issue in the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, there needs to be an information flow and there needs to be weekly sharing of information on a local basis, which is not just your case rates or your hospitalizations, it's about activity you know, who's doing what in terms of activity and how much of it is being done and how much of it can be linked to, to success. So you, you need all of those pieces in place. Um, you know, a true transdisciplinary partnership working is what it needs with government supporting it. But government needs to be supporting it from the point of view of being a facilitator on a national level and removing the barriers, for example, information governance barriers, so that the local people on the ground that know how to do this can get on and do it. Thank you. Yes, one, I think at least, at least one more, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you um, uh, for that, to house for that really uh, important uh, statement. My question really combines different backgrounds right so it's something you mentioned around the importance of building trust and sustaining that trust it relates to the first session that we had that demonstrated that going into the pandemic population health resilience was at an all-time low um, in terms of the health inequities and actually the, the conditions that people had so i wondered your thoughts on the lessons from this this community-based effort to build trust and engagement um, in healthcare and in trust in science. I wondered your thoughts on how, how this can be applied going forwards, right? Because you mentioned the that trust is not something that you just we just try to build in pandemics only. So how do you think lessons from what has what you've um, implemented so far in the pandemic? could be applied and could be useful to feed into addressing the broader issues around population health resilience? Well, that's a big question. I would say that what we're doing, what I'm saying we should do in a pandemic is something that should simply be recognized as essential working practice in public health. Okay, for example, there's a strand now um, called participatory epidemiology that some of you might be familiar with. And, and the, the basics behind that are people that are that are on the ground every day have a type of expertise that we as scientists or epidemiologists don't have. So you have to start first, and this is this is standard community-based participatory working, which is a whole field in itself internationally, which is where I work. You have to start from the premise that each of the groups that you're working with has specialist expertise. And you have to find out what that is, respect it, and make sure that you're pulling in the right type of expertise for each particular task at the right moment in time. That means establishing subgroups sometimes, working groups where people go off, do what they need to do and bring it back to the big group. This is the way to solve the complex, messy problems. It's transdisciplinary working. And I don't know how we're going to go forward with some of these things unless we do that. Um, we're doing it now in climate change. There's lots of transdisciplinary working groups that are applying these principles every day. And we could be doing the same thing in health and public health. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm not going to prolong your agony it's it's a difficult situation now to give uh sensitive answers to really complex questions but thank you very much indeed for your time thank you so that brings us carefully to the end of today's 
third session. And thanks very much to all the witnesses who've come and, of course, to those who've organised it. Thank you. Um, thank you very much.